0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Now, I do love talking about science stories here on this show, and I'm not even sure how to begin describing this next one, except to say it is not every day that we talk about the Earth's core and ancient oceans right? What does that even mean? We're going to find out. Uh, Dr. Samantha Hansen is with us now, the George Lindell III Endowed Professor of Geological Sciences at the University of Alabama and lead researcher on this. Dr. Hansen, thanks for being with us. No, thanks for having me. So your days are kind of filled with talking about ancient oceans, isn't that right?
2: <laughs> uh, recently, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the reaction to the paper has been kind of amazing. So Okay, well, tell
1: us about the paper. So what did you find?
2: So uh, I've been working with colleagues at Arizona State University and at the University of Leeds in the U.K., and we did a sort of multi-part study where um, my part of it was kind of a seismic investigation and we brought some modelers on board, too. Um, But in short, what we found is by looking at uh, signals from earthquakes that were recorded in Antarctica, uh, we found some interesting evidence for what are called ultra-low-velocity zones, or ULVZs, um, very deep in the Earth along the Earth's core mantle boundary. And the more we looked into this, we found evidence for these anomalous structures all over the place. Uh, so they're very widespread, but they do have variable structures. So some are thicker, some are thinner. And when we saw this pattern of this, again, very widespread but variable structure, Uh, We started thinking about what could be causing this, and so that's sort of where the modeling came in, in that we started investigating if you had material um, subducting or sort of recycling back into the earth, it over time will descend uh, into the lowermost mantle and will accumulate and be moved around by uh, mantle flow. And it actually matches our observations of these ULVZs very well, and so it provides a really nice explanation for these these structures that we're seeing.
1: Okay, so now in layman's terms, maybe you can explain <laughs> uh, so are you are you talking about like a like like a liquid layer around the core? like what is this?
2: So yeah, so I guess to set this up a little bit, um. So the core metal boundary is about 2,000 miles or 2,900 kilometers below the surface. Um, it's a, probably the biggest, uh, most anomalous boundary, uh, in our planet. So it's where the solid mantle, which is mostly made out of, um, what they call silicate rocks, meets the liquid metal outer core, so predominantly made of iron and nickel. So the jump in the physical properties across that boundary is greater than that between solid rock and air. But so it's a, a huge change in, in the structure and in the properties. Um, and so because of that, we've known for some time that there are unusual things happening in this part of the planet. Um, and so we've known for quite some time that we have these ULVZ structures along this boundary, but we don't know what they are. And up until uh, fairly recently, only about 20% of the um, core mantle boundary has even been investigated for these types of features. Um, our work's starting to help fill in that gap, so we do have a long way to go. Um, and so it's allowing us to not only expand the coverage and get a better understanding of what's happening down there, but again, it's it's helping us kind of tease apart where these things may have come from mm-hmm. and kind of how the planet works. on on a big-scale cycle, like how all these different pieces work together.
1: So it's like we're getting deep into the mechanics of of how the Earth works. So if we're learning more about this particular layer, does that help us explain other things, for instance, how plate tectonics work?
2: It can, yeah. So um, there's a couple of different kind of bigger-scale contributions I think this work can provide. Um, Most of this material, as you've already said, was once uh, oceanic, uh, material at the surface. And so that material has been pushed or recycled back into the earth at what are called subduction zones where one plate, one tectonic plate dives beneath the other. Um, and so it's it's getting an understanding of how that process works. How do we move that material into the planet? Where does it go? And then ultimately, you know, can it come back up to the surface again? And sort of related to that point, uh, one place where material may come back to the surface are what are called mantle plumes or hot spots like that beneath Hawaii, for example. So uh, the presence of these ULVZs that we've imaged might have a big impact on the temperature conditions in the deep earth, which ultimately might dictate where you actually get those those mantle plumes or those upwellings hmm. and how that stuff gets brought back to the surface. Um, Another thing that's been really interesting with this is if you do have this kind of blanket of uh, the ULVV material sort of coating the outer core, it's gonna help buffer or control the heat that's escaping the core. And other people have shown that um, the temperature conditions of the deep earth are also really important to how the outer core heat system works which ultimately influences how our magnetic field is generated. So the reason we have a magnetic field is because we do have this temperature change that is um, basically associated with the flowing liquid metal in the outer core. And so the temperature conditions there really impact that flow or that behavior, which ultimately then relates to our magnetic field and how, how that's constructed and Right, provided, so. Dr.
1: Hassett, how has this been so challenging? Like, why has it taken us so long to learn more about these parts of the crust?
2: Um, so I think a lot of this comes from uh, sampling, right? In order to investigate structures this far under our planet, you know, that's a, that's a challenging thing, right? To have to image things that are several kilometers thick under 2,900 kilometers of of other material is is a challenging thing to do Um, and part of it too is just like i said sampling because we have to rely on where we have earthquakes to give us data or signals and where you have stations to record them and of course those don't happen everywhere so um, i think with the antarctic data set it's really helping us to broaden these studies Um, and we are currently working to take the study that was just published and take it even further, um, bringing in more stations across Antarctica so we can get an even bigger footprint and, and keep going with this.
1: It is so interesting. Well, thank you for taking the time to explain it thank to you. us today. No, you're very welcome. That's Dr. Samantha Hansen, the George Lindall III Endowed Professor of Geological Sciences at the University of Alabama and a lead researcher on that project. And also, excellent example of why I love doing this job. Where else would I be able to talk about and learn about an ancient kind of ocean in the Earth's core? Nowhere, nowhere. That's what makes it so fascinating. This is Mornings with Simi there you go. You just heard the news there. Bank of Canada holding the interest rates steady at 4.5%. A lot of waiting going on to see what happens in the economy. We'll have more on that coming up, including numbers about our inflation situation too. So there's lots more economic news ahead. Keep listening here for the very latest. Right now though, we're going to talk about the news, in particular Fox News. Now we know Fox News is a very big deal in the United States, right? And sometimes what their hosts say can be, very controversial, generating headlines that show up all over the news, not just in the U.S., but here in Canada, too. And we're exposed to Fox News here. It runs on, I would say, most cable packages that are available up north. But should we be exposed to that? That is the question being asked by an LGBTQ rights group here in Canada. They've actually sent a letter to the CRTC over comments made by one of the Fox News hosts, Tucker Carlson. So let's find out what this is all about. Helen Kennedy joins us now, Executive Director of EGAL Canada. Helen, thank you for being here.
3: Well, thank you very much for having me. Much appreciated.
1: Well, let's talk about the letter first of all. What what made you want to do this?
3: Well, we had uh, we were featured on Fox News uh, back in March. Uh, March 28th, I believe, was when Tucker Carlson went on his rant against the 2SLGBTI community. Um, and after that, our social media channels and our emails and our organization was bombarded with hate. Um, And so we looked at the piece and it was really malicious and vicious, actually. And so we decided that we would look into it a little bit more and contact the CRTC and request uh, public consultations on the continued airing of Fox News in Canada.
1: And what is the basis for that?
3: Well, if you look at the piece, it is uh, labeling the trans community as violent and dangerous. It's malicious information. Um, It's really, it's riddled with hate uh, and violence. It calls for, um, basically it says that the trans community is a movement targeting Christians and that one side must draw blood before the other. Um, There's a flag, a trans flag, with what looks like a machine gun, superimposed Um, on the flag. And, you know, it it really is a hateful, um, violent uh, piece that I think needs to be called to task.
1: And so you feel like Fox News should be held to the same standards as Canadian news outlets?
3: Absolutely. You know, you you can't just go on air and and incite violence against any group in society. But when you're particularly targeting one of the most marginalized groups in our society, uh, I think that the Canadian broadcasting standards, uh, they they have to hold them accountable. And they should be held accountable to the same standard as the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's.
1: Right. So for instance, if this had happened here in Canada, what about your ability to be able to say, listen, we demand equal time on the show?
3: Well, it did happen in Canada because Fox has been broadcasting in Canada since 2004 as part of cable packages, as you you said, and it's not necessarily demanding the same amount of time. It's the quality of the time that you're demanding. And what we're saying is that this crosses the line. This is hate. It's inciting hate and it's inciting violence against the trans community.
1: And what kind of response have you gotten to this idea?
3: Well, we have received a a lot more hate um, from all across the country, all across the world, actually. And now we're waiting. We have filed a formal complaint. We've written the open letter. We filed a formal complaint with the CRTC. And now we're waiting to see if, in fact, they will do the consultations, um, which will give everybody an opportunity to State their peace. And so we'll see where it goes from there. But um, hopefully, they will hold the public consultations and they'll do the right thing and hold Fox accountable and cancel their license.
1: Now, Helen, were you prepared for that, for the more hate to come the group's way?
3: We have seen an increase in hate against our community over the last um, three years. There's been a 64% increase. In police-reported hate crimes against the two S LGBTI community just here in Canada, we're witnessing a rise in hate um, and rhetoric, violent rhetoric against our communities in recent months. And so, I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm I am a little surprised at the the quantity and the length that people are going to to let us know how they feel. I mean, they're calling our office, they're leaving voicemails. Uh, it's it's extreme. It really is extreme.
1: How do you deal with that? How do you prepare, like, even your staff to deal with that?
3: It's hard. You know, it, it does take uh, a toll emotionally. Um, we, we have staff who are very passionate about the work that they do, and they believe in what, they, what they're doing. And so going to the CRTC is one way and an opportunity for us to, to basically um, hold Fox accountable and hopefully get them taken off the air. And that will be a victory for us.
1: So has anything like this ever happened before, Helen? Is there any history of the CRTC deciding, yes, we'll take a look at this?
3: Well, it's certainly not to my knowledge with respect to the 2 LGBTI community. We do know that they have cancelled um, licenses before. Uh, most recently, I guess, they cancelled a Russian license. But, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes. I'm, I'm not necessarily looking to make history. However, we will, uh, we will pursue this to and, and take whatever means that are available to us to shut them down. All
1: right. Helen, thank you for your time on that this morning.
3: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: That's Helen Kennedy, the Executive Director of EGAL Canada. They're calling on the CRTC to review having Fox News in Canada on these cable packages saying that they feel that Fox News was very unfair to them and that, you know what, they shouldn't be in Canada. They're not going to respect Canadian broadcasting rules on that. That'll be an interesting one to watch to see what the CRTC says about that. No word yet on whether or not they will open that subject up for discussion.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, this time of year, there's a lot on the minds of students out there, particularly if you're graduating and you're wondering what happens now? What is that job market like? There seems like there are so many contradictory, you know, status factors out there about is it a good time to be looking for a job? And yet you hear about layoffs happening out there. So let's kind of get a hold of this and find out what the class of 2023 can actually expect in the job marketplace. Joining us now is Mike Shekman, who's the Senior Regional Director of Robert Half, based here in Vancouver. Mike, thanks for joining us today.
4: Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Vinny.
1: So what is the job market out there like now for graduates of this year?
4: It is an exciting time. Uh, you know, the ongoing labour shortage may actually prove to be quite uh, an advantage for the class of 2023. Uh, it's actually a strong uh, market, despite some of the... Headlines that we're reading right across the board. Um, When you look back over the last six months, Canada added nearly 350,000 positions. So it's uh, quite fascinating to see uh, what uh, will happen over the next number of months.
1: So what should some candidates perhaps be prepared for about what the process is like?
4: You know, what we've seen is that, um, you know, uh, organizations are... Uh, Although excited about bringing on new individuals, they are uh, a little bit cautious, Uh, so there will be multiple interviews uh, that will be uh, expected. The good news is that the process actually moves quite and fairly quickly, and organizations are quite efficient. But it could be uh, up to two, three, even four uh, interviews that can take place, uh, even for new grads. So just making sure that you're aware of the process and being uh, prepared is, uh, is critical in, that, uh, in those steps.
1: Okay, and what kind of questions can they get to, can they expect perhaps? Will it be all about their skills, do you think?
4: You know, this, it's an interesting point. Um, when, when you're looking at the hard skills and some of the soft skills, um, you know, organizations have started moving away from some of the technical aptitude uh, and what's interesting and fascinating to see as well is that uh, organizations are now really focusing on uh, some of the soft skills uh, what are what are some of your uh, motivators uh, how do you collaborate with uh, with other individuals or or departments so you know having the ability to utilize your transferable skills for what you learn at schools, whether it's uh, uh, school projects or uh, presentations are going to be critical uh, in your next uh, in your next position
1: so it's not just they want to know can you do the work they they kind of want to know how you do the work
4: uh, absolutely when you think about the the hybrid work model and how we were uh, thrusted to working remotely through the pandemic uh, especially now as people are uh, more coming back into the office and you have teams that are working all over the map, collaboration is, is really critical. So it's quite uh, quite interesting to see uh, how that uh, will transfer to, uh, to new grads as well. And being able to leverage uh, technology to uh, create efficiency is going to be uh, one step as they move into uh, the workforce.
1: Now, Mike, I've also heard from people who do the hiring, you know, managers and that kind of thing. And they often talk about or tell stories of people who've shown up at an interview and are just... Kind of woefully unprepared, right? Don't know anything about the company, and I mean, what kind of homework does a prospective employee need to do?
4: Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. Uh, you know, beyond those uh, skills, you know, managers are r- really looking at individuals that are going to be taking the time to to learn about the organization, uh, making sure that you review the website at the very least, uh, even taking the time to to understand the. <laughs> The industry and um, you know there's been more recent uh, news about the, the company as well whether it's news releases uh, etc so taking that into taking that um, and making that due diligence and getting to know the organization uh, in depth will will set you apart uh, and um, you know that is that is the really the bear expectation that many employers will have. So uh, it is really crucial uh, with uh, all the information at hand that you uh, take advantage of that and uh, prepare well.
1: Is it okay to follow up after an interview? You know, like you don't hear anything, can you call them and be just like, hey, wondering what happened with that?
4: Yeah, I think I would even take a step uh, back with that. I think that uh, when you are going through the interview process, uh, setting that clear expectation to understand what the process may look like uh, will not, uh, will set the tone in terms of, uh, how and when you can follow up as well. And again, this is a great differentiation point. Uh, you know, I always advise, uh, many candidates to send a thank you note, uh, after the interview and stay in touch with the hiring manager, but set that expectation so you're not in the cadence of that follow up as well. Uh, so you're not, uh, hounding the employer or the prospective, uh, hiring manager. Uh, but it does set you apart, and and maybe it is traditional. Maybe even take the time to write a um a thank you note on uh, on a card uh, and send that out uh, or courier that. I think that will certainly uh, make the mark uh, and uh, maybe set you apart from some of the competition out there.
1: Okay, and I also want to ask you about social media because if you're a class of twenty twenty three, you know, graduate you're fairly young, you know, I would assume at this point, therefore pretty active on social media. But how much do employers look at that? And if you're posting, you know, stuff about going out and having a good time all the time on social media, how much does that play into potential jobs, Mike?
4: There's always going to be a risk, and, and I would say that um, most uh, student employers, it's one of the first things that they do uh, before they hire individuals is just Google individual names or doing the background checks, uh, and it's, uh, it's crucial. It's crucial that um, you know, how you want to proceed uh, you know, is, is how your social uh, presence is going to look like, so maintaining a respectable online presence uh, is going to be really important, uh, and in making sure that uh, it aligns with what you want people to see you as. Uh, so, uh, whether it's uh, you know making sure that um, your your LinkedIn is uh, also up to date, making sure that uh, again people are are seeing the best uh, uh, version of yourself, uh, and uh, that's something that uh, most organizations will uh, will do as part of the hiring process as well.
1: All right. Well, so you're saying that you know for the class of 2023. Stay positive.
4: Absolutely. Stay positive. uh, Stay curious. uh, Stay uh, really hungry and and, and motivated. And I think that the more uh, humble you go into the position, uh, the more uh, you want to learn, the the better your odds are in in getting the position and and growing within an organization. So uh, it's exciting times, and I really look forward to the new uh, individuals that are coming into the workforce. Uh, We certainly need... uh, as many people as possible as we see uh, a lot of baby boomers retiring and uh, it's going to be uh, a short labor market for years to come so it's important that we uh, get a lot of skilled individuals into the workforce
1: all right mike thank you
4: thanks for having me on
1: this is mornings with simi battle to find a place to live. I mean, it continues for people of all different income levels. We're watching what has been unfolding as well in the last couple of weeks on the downtown east side where the continuing process of decampment is going on there. And we heard from Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim yesterday on that saying that, listen, city of Vancouver workers are going to be on site there every day for the foreseeable future to make sure that the encampments don't start up again question still remains, though, where are people supposed to go? So some announcements yesterday from the province on that. So we thought let's break them down this morning. Joining us now is Ravi Kailan, BC's Minister of Housing. Thank you for joining us today.
5: Good morning, Kimmy. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, let's talk about this, uh, these announcements that you had yesterday. So what is so significant here?
5: Well, uh, we've uh, already shared that, uh, you know, we have shelter space available for people that were moved from the Hastings encampment. But we know that the shelter space is temporary. We need to get people into more uh, stable housing uh, over time. Uh, We have about 100 units uh, coming online every month till the end of June. So we have about 330 units uh, that we expect by the end of June. But yesterday, we were able to secure and purchase uh, what was formerly called Chalmers Lodge, uh, 115 units that were made for seniors. Um, and now we've been able to purchase that, and we're hoping by the uh, end of summer to be able to take those units, make them available for seniors that are living in SROs. So, again, creating more capacity in the system to be able to house more people.
1: Okay, so will that be people who are already on a list? Uh,
5: so the way we usually um, uh, flow with people is that we have people go to shelters first, where we assess their needs, uh, assess whether they can live in Uh, um, you know, supportive housing or if they need complex care housing, or in some cases just need some support to get into rental housing. So once they get the shelters, we move them into different types of housing. Now, that being said, once we move people from shelters to, say, SROs or other types of housing, it creates new space for those that may need it. And so these new spaces that will be for seniors will target people who are older, who have been living on their own in SROs for some time, we'll be able to move them into the new units and create new spaces for others that may need it.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the SRO situation, because we keep hearing the Premier doesn't like them, we want to phase them out, but where are we at with that?
5: Well, there's a mixed, um, I guess, perception of SROs. Now, there are some SROs that are very old, um, many of them privately run, that are just in bad shape. And th- those are the ones that make headlines, they're in the news all the time. But there's a lot of SROs that have been renovated, many of them being operated by not for profits, that are actually not in bad shape. Uh, and so SROs over the long run is definitely where we want to move away from. But in the short term, we have about 90 buildings uh, located throughout Vancouver that uh, is important for housing people now. And so we've been uh, renovating a lot of the SRO spaces just. To the ones that we can keep online because we know we need to keep people housed and keep people in, so, indoors. But the plan over the long term is sit down with city of Vancouver, sit down with uh, from the federal government. We're having those conversations already about how we systematically move away from SROs into more stable housing.
1: Now, Minister Callan, do you also speak with the groups that are running some of these SROs clearly in untenable conditions? Like when you sit down with them, do you say, listen, you, you can't keep doing this?
5: Well, you know, we have. We've sat down with some of the privately operated ones, uh, and and it's a difficult conversation in the sense that uh, many of them, uh, maybe some of them don't care. Uh, the ones that do care, uh, when, they, when we talk to them about the dollars required to fix them up, uh, they're saying, hey, you know what, we may even just sell it and just let developers build it up. Now, that might solve one problem because we need more supply in the market, but it takes away these units that are actually affordable for for many. And so it's it's very complex. Uh, It's not as uh, simple as flipping a switch. It's going to take many years. But what we're doing right now is we've got approximately 70 people that were in the Hastings encampment. 90 of those uh, prior to that were able to be housed over the last few months. So we actually have been able to house a lot of folks that were on the Hastings encampment, uh, which is positive. We had about 70. We have capacity in our shelters. Again, shelters is where we have people go first so we can do assessments of where their needs are and then try to get them into other housing.
1: Are you okay with the way this has all unfolded, like with the decampment process? Are you okay with the way the City of Vancouver went about this?
5: Well, the responsibility of the, the encampment and enforcing bylaws is very much in the City's control. Now, I've said many times, I'll say it again, Uh, I I believe that um, the safety issues on Hastings and Camden in particular uh, are real. Uh, We had many fires. In fact, we almost lost a couple of um, uh, SRO buildings because of fires from outside, from the tents and fire going up the side of the building, which would have displaced many, many more people along the way. And we know that the crime challenges both Those affecting the people living in the encampment, but also the community at large, was just at a place that uh, was incredibly hard for uh, first responders to manage. So uh, so we support the uh, city's uh, assessment that crime and fire were a major issue. Again, operationally, that's up to the city. Our job is to ensure that there's shelter space available and there's housing coming online. And we have been doing those things,
1: right? Are you have you been asking questions about the shelter spaces, though? Because it feels like there's still a lot of people out on the street who, and we're hearing from community groups, say that there aren't enough shelter spaces for them to go there.
5: Well, the challenge is that um, when there's shelter space available, some people prefer to be outside as opposed to being in the shelter spaces, and and uh, and, and we know that's a that's a challenge, an ongoing challenge. Uh, but our main goal again is we have. Uh, 330 units coming online uh, from the 330, 95 of them. We just got occupancy permit on uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, and so we'll be moving people in from the shelters into those. And then we've also purchased additional units that will be coming in the fall. So we are moving people out of the shelters into um, more stable housing. And we'll definitely see some of the effects of that in the next week as more spaces Uh, get created in shelters by moving people into more stable housing.
1: Okay, so is it fair to say then, the process as you've described it is, people, I mean, who are living on the street, they say they don't want to go into the shelter, they don't like it, they don't feel safe there, but from what you're saying is, it's necessary for them to take that first step so they can kind of get into the system.
5: It it is necessary for them to, to take that first step in order to get through the system, but I would also say that, the the shelters are much safer for people than the encampments were. Uh, And I won't repeat um, the the many stats that you've probably already heard, but surveys done by not-for-profits just on uh, 50 women um, found that all 50 of them are reported being sexually assaulted in the encampment. And so, uh, you know, we feel confident that the shelters are much safer than the encampments. But of course, uh, you know, not everyone's needs are the same. Some people have been living outdoors away from people for years, uh, and asking them to go into a shelter, into a confined area, can become challenging. And so everyone's situation is different, uh, and no doubt the situation on the ground uh, with the de-encampment is challenging. Our and, you know, Hats off to our staff who are uh, working overtime just to help people uh, find uh, the shelter space that suits their needs um we do have some capacity of course some are full but some have capacity and we're trying to direct people to wherever the spaces are
1: okay and before i let you go very quickly any word on when we might get that bc housing report
5: uh well uh again i've I've said it many times (laughs) i'll say it again which is i believe it's in the public interest for that report to be made public uh but it's important that we follow a few legal steps before that happens and we're doing that now
1: okay so still the same timeline then
5: Still the same timeline. We need to follow the legal steps required before we can release it um, by law, and uh, and that's what's happening now.
1: All right. Well, we'll be talking more about that too. Thanks so much for your time.
5: Yeah. Anytime, Simi. Thanks a lot. Be safe.
1: This is
0: Mornings with Simi.
1: Different levels of government have been deeply involved in the housing issue in the last five, six, seven years, right? We know the provincial government has been investing billions into social housing. We know that just from the numbers and the different budgets that they've committed $7.1 billion to social housing since 2017. And that includes $2.5 billion just in the most recent budget. So where is this money going? Is it being allocated to the groups that are the most effective when it comes to providing different types of housing. Also, we're going to talk about this morning. So joining us is Margaret Fow, who's the CEO of the Aboriginal Housing Management Association. Margaret, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Simi. Uh, Thank you for having me here. Can you tell me a bit about the work that, that you do with the Aboriginal Housing Management Association?
0: Yeah, our organization has been on the ground for well over 25 years now, working with our Indigenous housing and support providers across British Columbia in uh, advocating for for Indigenous, by Indigenous solutions.
1: And how does that work then? So with all this money that is being spent on housing, does your organization get any of that? Our organization
0: works in partnership with the province of B.C. through successive governments to support our providers. Uh, Our providers are our key target here. We have over 55 providers across the province of B.C., and that number continues to grow with the recent uh, investments in housing.
1: So what have you seen then, Margaret, with those recent investments in housing? Is it effective, do you think? Like, is the money getting to the people who need it?
0: I think the reality is that the the crisis that we're all seeing in our backyards, you know, in particular here with the downtown east side being prominent uh, over the last few weeks, uh, you know, is the culmination of decades of uh, lack of collaboration, lack of investment in proper policy procedures and practices that could have forestalled the crisis that we're dealing with. Uh, our providers have been advocating for a long time
1: about the value of lived experience,
0: leading the solutions. And I think we're, we're on the cusp of going in that direction.
1: What do you mean? How would that be different from what we're doing now?
0: I think the reality is, you know,
1: governments have
0: a long and tried practice of being government-led solutions versus listening and learning from the people on the ground that have been living this experience that understand the barriers that have created the crisis that we're in right now and can lead with, and and this is in particular uh, the issue that we've been pushing, the for Indigenous, by Indigenous issue means that Indigenous people, when they're overrepresented in any part of the spectrum of housing, need to have Indigenous-led solutions that understand cultural safety, trauma-informed practices, and actually just by the nature of being there, create one less barrier to transitions in housing.
1: So are you getting that support though? Like for instance, we just saw what happened on the downtown east side or what is happening on the downtown east side. Is there a way to make sure that the indigenous people who are there in the encampment are are finding the support they need with perhaps your organization?
0: Yeah, I think that the governments at all levels, you know, local government, provincial government, federal government have been opening the doors for Indigenous led organizations like AMA and our providers. I think that, you know, unfortunately, we get stuck in this process of trying to demonstrate impactful change at levels of government that means that they fall back to old practices of we're in power. We need to make these decisions. We're going to act on those decisions. Uh, and, and we miss some of those critical steps that require that kind of inclusion of Indigenous-led expertise as we move through these processes.
1: Are you at all involved then in, in what is happening down there with this decampment process? Are there, are there people that can get involved in your organization?
0: Our organization has been sitting with government, both local and provincial, to talk about a good process going forward. Uh, You know, I wasn't privy to the framework of issues that that prompted this decision over the last few weeks. Uh, You know, I I can't speak to what's already happened. What I can speak to is the process going forward needs to be founded in three principles. Human rights-based approach for Indigenous, by Indigenous, given the over-representation. And finally, if we haven't learned anything over the last three years with COVID and the the climate crisis impacting housing issues, housing is the panacea. We're not going to resolve this issue if we don't invest in adequate housing so that we can move the people that need these services into safe, secure, long-term housing. Otherwise, it's just a displacement
1: practice. Margaret, so what do you see happening here? Do you see that process happening or do you see just displacement?
0: Honestly, right now, it's looking more and more like displacement. I do believe that government has tried to secure shelter. I think the reality is it's not about just temporary solutions. It has to be focused on long-term transitions to stable housing. Otherwise, we're just creating Band-Aid solutions.
1: Right. So from the way I had it explained today by the housing minister is that they need people in the shelter so they can get them into the system. But that must be incredibly challenging, convincing people that, no, no, we need to get you into the system.
0: I agree. I agree 100 percent. I think the reality is that every time we've moved in this direction where we do enforced displacement, we create a barrier of mistrust and it makes each successive attempt that much more challenging because the reality is the people that are living in these crises, they have decades of mistrust with the system. And I'm talking all of us. I'm talking, you know, government. I'm talking policing. I'm talking, I think my my dear friend, uh, David Seymour, had had framed it best. And this was decades ago when we look at what's happening. It's coffins, corrections, care, or housing.
1: That's such a stark way of looking at it, though, isn't it? Isn't it Margaret? Because oh. can you yeah. hear me? Yes. Right. So I was saying it's such a stark way of looking at it because you think that the people seem to be on the page of trying to do something. Um, is it just a, a band aid situation? Do we need to start completely over? Like, what, what do we do?
0: Yeah, I agree. And we've already started some of those good processes. I just think, like I said, we end up falling. of you know let we need to do something now when we already have good conversations happening at all levels of government about a good way of this that, you know, is founded in the human rights principles of long term solutions solutions versus short term band aids. Uh, and, and that's why I say going forward we need to be at those tables having those conversations and empowering the experts. The organizations that have been on the ground with the right tools to be the right advocate for the community.
1: Well, Margaret, thank you very much for talking to us this morning. Thank you, Sammy. That's Margaret fo who's the CEO of the Aboriginal Housing Management Association. Just, I think the more we talk about the housing issues that we have, the more we realize, I realize anyway, How incredibly complicated this situation is. You can't have people, because of the public safety issue, camping out on the street for extended periods of time. Fine. Okay. So then we say, we're going to find room for them somewhere. We want to put them in the shelter. Well, not everybody wants to go in the shelter, and there's not enough shelter spaces available. But if they don't go into a shelter, we can't connect them to the system so we can put them on a list so that we can get housing, but if they're camping out because they can't get housing, well, we can't also say, well, you can't just jump the line. There are people who did work within the system, who did go into the shelter, who are on the list ahead of you. And it just, it, you know what, it starts to go around in circles. And you think, are we trying to put like a, a square peg into a round hole here? And is that why this is so incredibly frustrating? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.